Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben. Today, my guest is Greg A. Salazar. Greg was, until recently, Professor of Historical Theology at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He's currently serving as a Presbyterian pastor in First Presbyterian Church, Pooler, Georgia, in the greater Savannah area. And we're talking to Greg today about his brilliant new book, Calvinist Conformity in Post-Reformation England, The Theology and Career of Daniel Featley, just published in Oxford University Press's series, Oxford Studies in Historical Theology. Greg, it's great to have you in the show. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for having me, Crawford. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's great to have you, and it's exciting to speak about this project. Um, it's, it, it's, it's a great book, and anyone interested in history of Puritanism, um, in the authorised version of the Bible, in the larger history of the Westminster Assembly, will want to pick this book up and understand why Featley is so important. Even those out there who might be interested in Baptist history will want to know a little bit about Daniel Featley too, but we might come to that in due course. Greg, it's great to have you here. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so, <clears throat> well, uh, I... Uh, have been serving up until recently as professor of historical theology for five and a half years at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, it was there that I taught courses uh, to PhD and uh, THM students. Uh, THM is essentially equivalent to the MPhil in the UK. Um, it's kind of a preparatory degree for the PhD. Uh, teaching courses on English Reformation and Post-Reformation History, Puritanism, Puritan Piety, Paleography, and uh, so on, um, as well as serving uh, part-time as an associate pastor at a PCA church. And so I've had this kind of dual call to both uh, training seminary students, um, teaching the academy, writing in the academy, as well as uh, being in pastoral ministry, and have about a year ago kind of uh, switched to more or less a full-time uh, preaching and teaching role as a senior pastor while also continuing uh, to keep up that dual role of writing in the academy and uh, in due course, uh, hopefully teaching as well. That's great. And maybe at the end of our conversation, Greg, we might talk a little bit about some of your current projects, which I know are exciting uh, and we've talked about some of those off air, which is great. Um, so tell us, how did you come to write this book, Calvinist Conformity in Post-Reformation England, The Theology and Career of Daniel Featley? That's a great question. Um, <clears throat> as I began to study uh, the Puritans, uh, really at the beginning and even before my seminary studies, I found myself gravitating towards the work of people like Peter Lake, who were interested in moderate Puritans and the spectrum that exists within Puritanism. And as I read Lake and uh, particularly Anthony Milton's book, Catholic and Reformed, um, <clears throat> began to see that one of the new and exciting fields uh, and areas of study within Puritanism, uh, really following so much of Patrick Collinson's work, was looking at um, really the differences between 
various figures within the Church of England that were both uh, Puritan and what we might call Calvinist conformists, and how those how those figures negotiated their relationship to the Church of England, to separatists, and <clears throat> and to one another. And I was looking around, trying to explore uh, different interesting figures. I think that's one thing that I picked up from from John Morrill is that. Um, wanting to study not only history, but in particular, really interesting figures and events in history. And through a series of events, um, I was put in contact with a good, who is now a dear friend of mine, Chad Van Dixhorn. Um, And Chad uh, pointed out as, you know, the, probably the world expert on the Westminster Assembly, there was a very curious figure who toes this line between the edge of moderate Puritanism and what we might call a conforming Anglican, Anglican probably anachronistic, but uh, somebody who's very committed to the Church of England. And that figure was Daniel Featley. Um, What really interested me about Featley was not only his middling position, but the fact that there was tremendous amount of printed and particularly archival evidence uh, in relation to him. So discovered early on that Featley has this uh, self-collected manuscript of his own letters and other unpublished writings housed at the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Oxford. And it was that, along with his involvement in so many of the important themes and enterprises of this early Stuart period that really interests me. So somebody who is uh, uh, the youngest member of the translation committee for the authorized version, somebody who was a, a li- an active licensor and involved in book publishing, uh, was a chaplain to an archbishop, uh, was a staunch polemicist against uh, not only Catholics and Arminians, but also Presbyterians and Baptists. Um, And then, of course, somebody who was the lone Episcopalian at the Westminster Assembly. That really sealed the deal for me when I I began to look at the invitations to the Westminster Assembly and learned that 31 folks, uh, 31 divines declined their invitation to the assembly. And as I began to dig deeper, it looks like about half of those declined their invitation to the assembly. This assembly summons that went out to the most uh, godly and learned divines, half of them, so roughly 15 uh, divines, declined their invitation, it seems, because of their commitment to both episcopacy and the monarchy. Uh, the lone exception to that is Daniel Featley. Um, you know, among the list of fifteen are figures uh, as well known as James, as the great Archbishop James Usher, and yet Featley uh, accepts his invitation. And yet, two years later, 
um, or a short time later, uh, several months later, not two years, uh, a short time later ends up being imprisoned by the very group that had invited him to the assembly and then dies in prison two years later. And that is a very curious ending for a really interesting figure. And so um, as I looked at all of that, I realized these are the kind of things that I think are not only interesting, but actually could shed light on the broader uh, typography and landscape of the early of early Stuart religion and particularly early Stuart Calvinism uh, by studying by studying one figure and his connections to so many of these other movements and so it was a in, in some ways a micro study looking at one figure but as time went went on I began to realize that this this figure actually would help establish as much as one figure can but I think I think there's there's enough connection with others, and I try to show that in the book, would, would, would help establish what are the bounds of Calvinist conformity during this period. I think that's one of the things that really struck me about the book, Greg, was the way in which the story of one very distinctive individual, uh, almost idiosyncratic in some respects, is actually the story of a much bigger movement. I found that really compelling uh, part of, of, of your book's um, description. If you were going to distill this book into a couple of sentences, what would you say its central argument was? Yeah, <clears throat> that's a great question. I think the central argument of this book is that by looking at the way in which Featley both holds to his priorities and yet uh, develops those, and by develop, I mean learns how to negotiate those priorities within a changing ecclesiastical landscape. We can learn something about the nature of the politics of religion and the various priorities and tensions that figures who found themselves in a middling position um, had had to negotiate. What I mean by that is that it's not to say that um, that Daniel Featley or the Calvinist conformists, which who, by the way, I would argue would be really the main figures inhabiting the uh, the established church, especially in the Jacobean period, but I would even extend that all the way into the Caroline period and the early Stuart period. This main group of, of figures... Um, it shows the way in which they are principled and yet flexible, meaning that um, there are common themes that we can see, and there are there are very much guardrails. There are there are uh, edges to that, and yet uh, there's a fluidity based on who they're interacting with of. <clears throat> of what they're going to emphasize, um, what they're going to de-emphasize, and how they're going to negotiate this, and as part of, in part, a political survival strategy. And we see that in particular uh, in the years between 1626 and 1642, when many of these figures find themselves um, 
out of power. And <clears throat> during the years of uh, Charles I, and then especially when William Laud becomes archbishop and you have this period of, uh, of, of Laudian rule, um, these figures, uh, they have to figure out how to negotiate both what they hold to in their conscience and how that's going to express itself um, <clears throat> within the established church to avoid losing their post. And so in that way, there's a lot of similarities between the arguments that I'm making in the early Stuart period about Calvinist conformists and the arguments that Peter Lake made in his seminal work, Moderate Puritans in the Elizabethan Church. Great. So if we were going to take the story of Featley then as not quite representative, but illustrative of this of, of this bigger community. How does Featley's story begin? What do we know about his formation? So uh, chapter one really explores Featley's formation as a Calvinist conformist. And, and one of the things that emerges is Featley in these early days has uh, relationships with figures who are both very firmly within the established church. Um, well, I would say all of them are in the established church, but um, he, he has he has figures with the likes of John Reynolds, um, who uh, was one of the early, um, well, he was a translator of the authorized version, uh, as well as... <clears throat> one of the Puritan representatives at the Hampton Court Conference. Um, and he has builds these relationships while he's in Oxford as a student and then later as a fellow. Uh, but he also um, early on has uh, relationships with members of who are firmly committed in the established church, um, as well as a, a real interest in others who f seem to fit his theological identity. So those who are familiar with the work, say, of John Jewell, um, somebody who is um, a, a bit earlier figure, um, but would be, would be exemplary and uh, an exemplary figure of established church Calvinism or Calvinist conformity, or you could say an Anglican Calvinist. Uh, Fila has a very interesting, uh, ha has an interest in him, but he also has an interest in a figure like William Whitaker. Um, William Whitaker being the, you know, Eliz Elizabethan polemicist of anti-Catholicism and somebody who Lake looks at carefully in his, in his book, Moderate Puritans, as being, yes, a Puritan, uh, yes, a polemicist, but also somebody who is, who is nevertheless committed to uh, the established church. And what I see in Featley is somebody who at a very early age is both being formed by formidable figures like John Reynolds, and yet very interested in continuing on in a tradition and understanding that tradition is in the forebearers and then seeking to position himself firmly within uh, within that tradition. And I think we see that that trajectory continue on after um, his time in Oxford. He has a stint in which he uh, is in Paris 
as a chaplain to the English ambassador there, uh, Thomas Edmonds. Um, and it's, I don't think it's a, a surprise that he engages in polemicism against Catholics during that during that season uh, one of the way one of the, this was something that was exemplary of Whitaker's career and so many others that part of the way that you part of the way that you demonstrate your commitment to the established church is by defending her against the the foremost enemies of that church namely the Catholics and so even while he's living in Paris as an English ambassador he is, or, or as a chaplain to the English ambassador, he is he is very much engaged in these um, in these debates, and I think that 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 engagement is performative and signaling something. I think it's genuine, of course. I think he sees a genuine threat there, but I also see Featley as somebody who is uh, something of a pragmatist and somebody who understands the nature of how promotion takes place. And that's something that continues on throughout the work. That's one of the big, one of the big themes I, I look at is how through his positioning, he sets himself up for promotion along the same trajectory. And I don't mean that teleologically, meaning that I don't mean that, that it's, it's something that we just look back over his career and assume about Featley. There's evidence, actually, in Featley's own writings of his ambition and of his desire uh, to be in the center of it all. Um, he has a really difficult time, for example, when he um, when he transitions from being in this uh, more prestigious post of being a chaplain uh, to the English ambassador and very much involved in anti-Catholicism. Uh, to being uh, a pastor down in Cornwall um, and, you know, not being in the big city center, not being in the middle of it all, and uh, in his letters pining after something more influential and <clears throat> seeking in particular to, to obtain the post that he eventually obtains, which is uh, to be a chaplain to Archbishop George Abbott. And with that, as an extension of that role, he is also an ecclesiastical licensor. So it's a very interesting uh, years in terms of his formation, how we see his positioning of himself uh, in connection with his polemical debates in order to find ways of promotion within the established church. Uh, that he's seeking to make an influence. In. And so I think those those different elements are all uh, very pronounced in these early years, and these things continue on throughout his career. We really see the formation in these early years of Featley as a young scholar um, into, the, into promotion. And, of course, um, probably the thing that he's most well known for in his early life is being, and there's been some debate about whether or not he is, he is in fact um, the figure who's referred to in the records. But I think there's good reason uh, to argue that Featley was in fact the youngest 
translator of the authorized version, which he secures that because of his relationship with John Reynolds and Reynolds uh, being over um, a large portion of uh, one of the uh, subgroups that translates uh, the old uh, portion of the Old Testament. And so it, there, there we see again, relationships between prominent people, uh, uh, John Reynolds, a uh, formidable you know, professor at Oxford, uh, member uh, of the, the Puritan contingency that, that goes, one of the four that represents the Puritans at the Hampton Court Conference. Um, through this figure, he, he has this promotion, and yet that continues on, a chaplain to an English ambassador, um, somebody who uh, works for Archbishop George Abbott uh, for seven years. Um, the, the, these, uh, the, these promotions um, were, were very much tied to personal connections and patronage, which is a common theme uh, in this period. And, Greg, the, the, the uncertainty about whether he is, in fact, the youngest member of the translation team for the authorised version working on the prophets, it's because the listing is, I think, Mr. Fairclough or something, isn't it? So it's not the same name, but yet it is his name you explain in the book. Yes, that's exactly right. So uh, so uh, Daniel Featley's name, his surname, um, is listed in several different places as being uh, uh, Featley or Faircloth. And it's very interesting. Um, Featley's nephew, who writes the earliest biography of Featley, actually explains at the beginning of the biography, um, he, he himself, John Featley, having the same surname, he explains how the name... Uh, developed over the years and turned from Fairclaw to Featley. And so even though uh, Mr. Fairclaw is listed as one of the translators in the list, uh, which is uh, which is actually in the British Library, there's a list of the translator names. It's probably the best source for um, who actually worked the translators of the authorized version. Um <clears throat> that if we look at the development of Featley's name and Featley's, the history of Featley's family, uh, it seems to me that when you piece together that with the personal connections to Reynolds and then some of the other, um, this is the argument I make in the book, some of the other correspondence taking place during that time, it seems to me undeniable that Featley, uh, the things that are being referred to there are his um is very much his involvement in the nitty-gritty work of translation with the authorized version. And so we have him in the you know in, in the late 1600s up to 1611 translating that iconic Bible translation. In the 40s we have him in the mid 40s at least for a couple of years part of another iconic moment in the religious history of the 17th century, the uh, the meeting of the Westminster Assembly. And one of the things I think your book does really beautifully is to show how during those two peaks, if you like, of his career, at least from our perspective, he, he, is, he is very consistent in holding together his theological opinions, but he does so as the world around him keeps changing. And as the world around him keeps changing, what those what his position means changes too, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think <clears throat> I think that's really well said in a in a great um, a summary of of what I'm what I attempted to argue in the book. That <clears throat> if you study the years between say 1611 and 1643, so when the authorized version is published. Um, and when the Westminster Assembly begins, these are really some of the most turbulent years of uh, English church history that obviously culminate with the English Civil War uh, during the 1640s and eventually the execution of Charles I in 1649. Now, I say that because um, I think I think it helps us to put into perspective that when we talk about years of turbulent change and ideas that have consequences, that's really what we're describing um, in this thirty-year period. We're talking about um, we're, we're we're talking about profound shifts in terms of uh, how people understand what the church and Church of England is, what it's. Uh, what is foundational to being a member of the Church of England, both theological and ecclesiastical. And Featley is somebody who is both a theological Calvinist and uh, an ecclesiastical, uh, uh, very much committed to the established church. And so he he is navigating those those two changes, the theological changes towards anti-Calvinism, um, which, of course, folks like Nicholas Tyack and others have um, charted how there really was a transition from Calvinism to anti-Calvinism among <clears throat> those who were in the upper echelons of uh, ecclesiastical authority. Um, as well as this ecclesiastical shift uh, to what Peter Lake has called the beauty of holiness movement and um, so much of what we might, you know, maybe anachronistically call high, a transition to more of the high church and this emphasis on church beautification and structures, but, but also the relationship between the Church of England and Rome, which is, of course, been the center of Anthony Milton and others' work. And so Feely's trying to negotiate these shifts from what you might call a more Jacobean Calvinistic or Reformed. I know that's something that's uh, been very much a part of the debate as of recently. How do we, how do we, what terms do we use? Um, <clears throat> and what you might call the the pillars of Laudianism and anti-Calvinism. And for Featley, as somebody who is, who is eager to remain within the established church and also somebody who is, um, who is eager for promotion while also um, very convictional and unwavering, um, and that's something I try to make very clear, unwavering in his commitment to his theological priorities, that becomes very, very tricky in the 1630s. And then even more tricky in the 1640s, when there is quite a dramatic shift in the beginning of the 1640s um, between a, a anti-Calvinist or Laudian um, 
where the, the anti-Calvinists and the Laudians, maybe at the be- very beginning of the 1640s, are um, are in power. Uh, they have significant authority. And then there's the breakdown of censorship at the beginning of the 1640s and um, the rise of more of a Puritan establishment with you know, those things that we often think about most of the 1640s, the Westminster Assembly and uh, Charles I eventually fleeing London and going to Oxford and the English Civil War and all these other things uh, signaling that there really is a transition uh, taking place back again, but this time it's towards a Puritan Republic. And so Featley's trying to figure out, well, how do I, uh, how do, how, how do I, um, <clears throat> how do I explain some of my actions in the 1630s uh, to those who are uh, newly vested with power in the 1640s? And that's, and that's the, a very difficult thing. And, and that's how the book concludes, isn't it? With that um, almost tragic moment when Featley, who has survived all the vicissitudes of the rise of the Arminians, finds himself very much at the mercy of people whom theologically he had much more in common Um but not politically. Um, Greg, it's a, it's a fascinating book, and I really recommend it to anyone who's interested in this period of history. You've been very generous in giving up some of your time this morning to, to talk to us about it, but before we let you go, could you tell us what your next project is going to be? It's a great question. Um, I have found myself over the years very interested in Jonathan Edwards. Um, uh, for much of the, you could say, there, there's some common themes in terms of uh, figures who are both in, interesting and yet there's this intersection um, between many, many themes. One of the things that that has most interested me about Edwards and that I've vetted um, some of my initial ideas with with some of the foremost uh, Edwards scholars, people like George Marsden and Doug Sweeney and, and others, is, um, is this whole argument of, is Edwards a Puritan uh, or not? And <clears throat> how do we establish that? What is the, what is the connection uh, between Puritanism as a movement and Puritanism as an ideology? Uh, what, what is meant by that? claim? Uh, is it primarily theological? Is it pietistic? Is it historical? Um, <clears throat> and um, and Edwards uh, has been known, well, you know, those among Edwards scholars, as somebody who's very much a translator, meaning he's somebody who is translating things uh, and, and themes from the early modern period in, in, a, in a new uh, enlightenment period. And, uh, but interestingly, for all the talk around, you know, Edward's spirituality and is Edward's a Puritan, uh, nobody has really delved into um, Edward's primary sources and tried to lay out from historical and theological and pietistic perspective, uh, what would be the issues that you would need to negotiate in order to um, demonstrate that? And what is the relationship of Edwards um, to, uh, to these broader movements of, let's just call it early modern, the early modern period in Puritanism and the modern period in the Enlightenment with uh, 
revival and uh and and so many of the you know major themes and figures people like Whitfield and Wesley and others um and 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 how do if we were to to attempt to answer this question is there is is Edwards perhaps and uh, I'm not suggesting this is the case but it is a question I have is Edwards a kind of transitional figure and a translator of Puritan theology and spirituality to a to a new context, and how has that legacy uh, lived on in the transatlantic world, and particularly up until the modern day? There's been a real interest, um, and so show my cards here a little bit. There's been a real interest, of course, in Edwards in recent years, particularly in New Calvinism. Um, uh, in the last 20 or so years. And people have appropriated Edwards and Puritanism and, and, and some of these themes in a modern context towards a modern movement. And I'm very much interested, much like the Cambridge School of Thought of Quentin Skinner and others, of looking at figures and ideas on their own terms. And I I want, I, I'm eager to preserve the integrity of Edwards as a figure and kind of look at him as a transitional figure and somebody who perhaps is a translator um, in his own context and, and see what that translation might tell us about some of these debates about uh, what is reformed, what, is, uh, what does it mean to, to carry on the legacy of Puritanism, and, and why is it that Jonathan Edwards... Um, is such a uh, such a central figure to the New Calvinist movement. Um, what is it about him, from a historical and theological perspective, uh, that that is so attractive? And I think the answer is uh, is connected with this idea of him as a transitional figure and as a translator. He connects us in some ways. He connects the early modern world. Um, to our modern and particularly American, uh, you know, evangelical roots. Well, that sounds like a great project, Greg, and hopefully uh, we'll have a chance to chat to you about it when it comes to fruition. Uh, that certainly seems to raise a lot of interesting issues and questions. Well, Greg, for now, thank you very much for writing this book, Calvinist Conformity in Post-Reformation England, The Theology and Career of Daniel Featley, and thank you for sharing your time and being willing to come and speak to us about it today. Thank you so much, Crawford. It's been great to be here. And thanks to everyone else for listening in. I'll see you next time on the New Books Network podcast.